tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. It's the Feast of St. Luke, a wonderful, wonderful feast for a wonderful, wonderful saint. And we're going to talk about him today, among other things. So let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them with the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And to thou, O Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's open the big book, part of which St. Luke wrote. Yeah, I got it. I thought that was an interesting call. Um, oh, there was a call we were going to think about, the abortion, that abortion verse. Let's do that now. Exodus, uh, what, what's the exact citation? Okay. We'll I'm going to say this up. live for everyone that's yeah. following along at home. Exodus 20, chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. Uh, someone called in and said that people who are pro-abortion said to her that Exodus 21, 22 to 25, what? This is actually a person at the abortion clinic. Oh, at the clinic. Oh, I yeah, think she, she was praying was, outside. She was praying outside, and the abortionists actually said to her, no, the Bible justifies abortion in Exodus 21, 22, and following. So when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her, her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, and the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Uh, they use that text as a text to justify abortion. Um, the person who causes an abortion will be fined, and the woman's husband shall impose on him. He shall pay as the judge determines. That doesn't sound to me like it's a justification of abortion. Um, in fact, is uh, uh, it sounds like quite the opposite to me. But that was uh, brought up yesterday. So, you know, people will take a verse of Scripture and use it any way they want. Um, it just makes, you know, I always when talking about abortion, I always paraphrase Abraham Lincoln. He once said, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. Well, I would say, if abortion is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. And that's exactly the point. This is almost the sacrament of, of, of the woke movement, in a way, because— that's the point of it. Nothing is wrong. You know, the, the, everything is okay. And if we say, yeah, killing your unborn child or your almost-born child is not okay, then something is wrong. I mean, if there is such a thing as natural, reasonable law, then 
the whole, I don't know what to call it. I, I don't know if woke is the appropriate word, but the entire agenda of, of what would you call it, your voice in my head? What do you think is a good, a good inclusive, <laughs> inclusive name for the kind of forces that, you know, tick off everything? Uh, oh, gay marriage, this, that, the other thing, abortion. It's all good. You can do what you want except disagree with us. I, I don't know a relativistic ideology. Yeah, a re, uh, yeah. I guess relativistic. I call it narcissistic ideology. But um, at any rate, you know, you know, who we're talking about, and and that's why abortion is so important to them because it says that even that barbarity is not wrong. But ah, let's get back to the the scriptures, scriptures du jour. But I just didn't want to let that go by uh, before we commented on it. So uh, okay, let's get back to the text. This today is the feast of Saint Luke the Evangelist, and very interesting that Luke is called in Colossians, uh, the fourth chapter, the fourteenth verse. Uh, Luke is called. Uh, why don't I just look at the English text of this? Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Demas is going to be mentioned in today's reading. So, he, Luke, when he wrote the letter to the Colossians, uh, um, um. Sent greetings from, or not Luke, rather Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Colossians, sent greetings from Luke, who was his dear physician, and Demas. So Luke seems to have traveled with Paul. It's interesting that Paul traveled with a the doctor. Um, there's one point at which he says to, I forget to whom he's saying it, but he says to, in one of his letters, I know that you would give me your very eyes if you could. Now, the theory is perhaps he had difficulty with his eyes, but Luke, according to this, was a doctor. And this is thought to be, of course, the same Luke. He was uh, uh, a non-Jew, a Gentile, who had uh, uh, who had converted to Judaism and then had accepted Christ. And very interesting, the Gospel of Luke starts with the four best lines, I think it's four lines, four best lines of Greek in the New Testament. And very interesting, uh, Let's look at that, uh, because, you see, people think of the Gospel of Luke, well, they think of all the Gospels as, um, well, they're, they're, they're written to tell you about Jesus. And I don't think they were intended by their, their human authors to tell you about Jesus. They're biographical and historical, but I wouldn't say they're biographies. Uh, they're very limited biographies. They don't talk about, you know, they don't tell you how tall Jesus was. Or as per your question, yes, yes. His but, bowling scores. His bowling scores, yes, the voice in my head mentioned. Uh, and the the question we had yesterday, what color was his hair when he was a baby? That was a cute question asked by a young person. So um, <clears throat> let me read this. This is the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Here we got a problem. We have the word eyewitness, autoptai. It's a legal term, an eyewitness. And uh, um, the servants of the word or ministers of the word, where that's somebody who's, well, the deacon's a minister of the word. That's not what the word is. It's hyperetes, which servants is closer, but hyperetes means an assistant. And the word logos can mean a law case. You can translate this. We have these things were 
told to us by those who from the very beginning were eyewitnesses and assistants at the law case. With this in mind, I have myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I, too, have, have written uh, um, an orderly account to you. And then most excellent, that's kratiste in, in, in Greek, and that means your excellency, your excellency Theophilus. There was a your excellency Theophilus. He was the youngest son of the high priest Annas. So that you may know the certainty of the things, and they say what you have been taught. It's, that's not the word in Greek. It's of, you have been, of which you have been made aware. This is, I think, and I'm stealing this from real scholars, this is a legal document. And and Luke wrote it in the best Greek he could, and this is the first of of, of a two volume work of Luke and Acts. Now let's get to the reading itself. Uh, this I think this I, I really believe this was written uh, to to uh, get Theophilus to quash the lawsuit against against Luke. Well, here we go. We're we're at the reading from Second Timothy, and it's kind of vexing that that. There's all sorts of people who say, scholars who say, well, 2 Timothy was probably not written by Paul. Why do they say that? These have traditionally been thought to have been written by Paul, but they're different from his other epistles. And I'm reading here, since the early 19th century, scholars have increasingly seen them as a work of an unknown student of Paul's doctrine. They do not address Paul's common themes, such as the believer's unity with Christ, and they reflect a church hierarchy that's more organized and defined than the church was in Paul's time. That is an assumption. The church was tremendously organized from the beginning. Uh, this this 19th century scholarship, uh, and I, I'm, I'm referring to John, Dr. John Bergsma's uh, book, uh, uh, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, excellent, again, excellent stuff. He makes the point that in the 19th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls had not been brought to light. But the structures of the early church are reflected in the communities that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this, this well-developed ecclesiology, this, this well-developed church structure existed in Judaism and simply was used by Christ in establishing the church. So this idea that, well, it's, it's too structured, the church wasn't structured, the church was structured from the first moment of its existence before Pentecost, when Peter stood up and said, somebody needs to take, and that's the word in Greek, someone needs to take the episcopate of Judas. It's, it's, that's, they use the word episcopi, which means the episcopate. So the church was very structured. So the idea that, that because he's talking about a structured church, uh, this can't be from Paul, that is nonsense. It is, it is poor scholarship. Uh, now, the other objection that these things were written, they deal with different things. Let's, let's see what they deal with. I think this is one of the saddest and loveliest of Paul's letters. He says, Demas. Remember we just mentioned Demas, the letter to the Colossians, how Demas and Luke send greetings? Demas, enamored of the present world, deserted me and went to Thessalonica. In other words, Demas had left him. Crescens went to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. He's all alone. In, in, in imprisoned under house arrest in Rome. Luke is the only one with me. 
So get Mark and bring him with you. Now, this is a beautiful story. This is Mark, John Mark, probably the son of the woman who owned the house in which was found the upper room in Jerusalem. Uh, you hear about the mother of John Mark. And Paul, and he was a relative of Barnabas, apparently. Paul had had gotten into it with Mark because Mark Mark left them when they were in a difficult part of Turkey. And the early church father said, well, because he missed he missed his mother. <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, Paul and Mark were reconciled to each other. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, you think the early church, oh, they were perfect. No, they had their tiffs, and here we go. I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus, and this just breaks my heart. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus and Troas. Troas is in Turkey, and he's in Rome. And apparently... Uh, Timothy's going to come to him. And the papyrus rolls, especially the parchments. His writing paper, he needs his writing paper. Papyrus was made of reeds. It came from Egypt. It it was fairly expensive. Paper was rather expensive. But parchments, parchments were incredibly expensive. They were made from the sheepskin. And if you wanted a document to be permanent, you wrote it on parchment. And uh, uh, we have a lot of papyrus that survived in the dry climate of Egypt. But in wetter climates, it didn't last that long. But parchments, they were permanent. And they were very, very expensive. To write a whole book, you might have to kill quite a few sheep. Then he goes on, Alexander the coppersmith did me a great deal of harm. This may have been the Alexander who's mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles in the context of the riots in Ephesus. And... um, in Ephesus, there was a big tourist trade in little images of the goddess and images of the temple. Alexander seems in the context of the Acts of the Apostles to have been Jewish. If he was, he was certainly violating kosher law if he had to deal with that tourist trade. We we don't know. There's not enough information here. But there was an Alexander who was put forward by the Judean population of Ephesus uh, uh, to... Uh, accused Paul and, uh, well, did him a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Isn't, isn't this interesting that Paul is under arrest and he sounds a little bit, well, I, wouldn't, I would say discouraged. And he's been hurt by people. To me, this is beautiful that, that we look at Paul's imperfections and this man who is tired and discouraged at what he thinks may be the end of his life. Now, Paul was arrested. There's a strong tradition, and it's reflected in early Christian literature. Paul was accused, tried, and acquitted. Then he was rearrested under Nero and executed. So there were two imprisonments. And this was written around that time. And, and, um, He's all these, all this sadness. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me the proclamation might be completed. To me, that is just tellingly beautiful and, and, and very precious. Uh, let's look at the gospel. For, it's just, Paul was a guy. He was just a, he was a, a, just a really normal, normal fellow. 
Well, I just want to comment a little bit on this section of Luke, the 10th chapter, the 1st to the ninth verse. The Lord appointed 72 disciples. In some texts, it's 70, and some it's 72. St. Jerome of the Vulgate chose the text that mentioned 72, and so we use 72. He sent them ahead of him in pairs. In the Eastern Church, these are called the 72 apostles. Why would they call them apostles? I've told you frequently that there were a lot more apostles than 12. There was a group, identifiable leadership, identifiable leadership group in the church, in the early church, called the Twelve. And Peter was clearly the leader of the Twelve. They were also called a few times, not much, but they were a few times they were called the Twelve Apostles. But then there were lots of apostles. All of uh, the disciples were apostles, but not all apostles. Or, I mean, all of the Twelve were apostles. But not all of the apostles were members of the Twelve. You see, an apostle is just someone who is sent out on mission. And there we have the word whom he sent. And that word in Greek is apostello. An apostolos is an apostle. Apostello means I apostle them. I send them out. So you could translate this. The Lord Jesus appointed 72 disciples whom he apostled ahead of him in pairs. So that's why they're called the apostles, uh, the 72 apostles in certain places. He says, carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals. You know, just trust the Lord. Uh, so, um, it's it's. I just thought that's kind of interesting. Well, uh, being interesting, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll come back for letters, and you can call in uh, on at eight one four. What am I? Uh, growing old is not for the timid. Eight. Oh yeah, our toll free line. Don't forget. Toll-free, 888-914-9149, and it's sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters. So thank you to the Catholic Order of Foresters, and do call in, 888-914-9149. Father Simon says, This time you can trust me. See, here's a signed document, testifying that I promise not to pull it away. Ah! Peculiar thing about this document, it was never notarized. On Relevant Radio. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at RelevantRadio.com slash Forrester. I'm moving on, moving on, Lord, I'm moving on down that line. I know where I've been, and I can't stay here, Lord, I'm moving on down that line. You mean the expressway. That sort of seems to be the context of my life these days. Oh, Gewalt. You know, I bought a new rocking chair, and I was hoping to practice for the rocking chair races, but not so far. All right, let's go to why should why should I burden you with my problems that I'm lazy? All right, let's go to, let's go to, what are we going to? Letters, there we go. I got a letter from, um, I, I don't know quite... If I know the name here, but I'll just say it. Uh, grave concern is a question. How can we grow in a synodal state of liturgical celebration, which highlights the distinctive contribution of all participants? Stating from the variety of vocations, I I don't quite understand the question. Um, you know that that the liturgy. 
how to say this? Um, as I say, I don't quite understand the, the question, but the liturgy has always had a great involvement of many people. We got used to, I think in the West, we got used to a liturgy that was, the priest came out, said the Mass, we were there, but but we've always had choirs and we've always had uh, acolytes and we've always had deacons and, you know, that the, they're simple liturgies and they're grand liturgies, but... Um, it's it's uh, you know I, I wish I understood the question better. So at any rate, uh, as I always say, um, as you always say, we need to trust the Lord in these things. All right, let me go to this one. This is uh, <clears throat> Sarah from Minnesota. Is the way we are instructed to receive communion based on how Jesus distributed his body at the first Eucharist? Uh, as you are aware, there are current camps that are more adamant that only. Only on the tongue, others in the hand is okay. It's really, we don't know how Jesus distributed communion at the Last Supper. Remember, they were not standing. They were laying on couches. So I don't know if Jesus went from couch to couch or just passed it around. We don't know. It seems very clear as you read early church documents, that communion was distributed in the hand. And I was taught that that stopped because people were taking the Eucharist home and and um, uh, were using it for even occult purposes. I don't know. I, did, I You know, I have tried hard to research the, the use of unleavened bread in the West, and there's nothing written about when this happened. These things change in different places gradually. Um, uh, those, and again, I'm reading from the letter from Sarah, those against communion in the hand seem to say that only consecrated hands can touch Jesus. I feel like lots of unconsecrated hands touched Jesus, and he was okay with that. You know, you, you, you have arguments on, on both sides of, of the fence there. Um, that, oh, good grief is right. Okay. Hey, now. Spam. I like spam, just not on my phone. Okay, moving along. Where was I? The custom in in most of the churches became a, a limitation of who could touch the blessed sacrament. Because you really, you know, I think the biblical precedent for that is is actually in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ eats and drinks to condemnation. Well, what does that have to do with communion in the hands or communion on the tongue? That that if you don't know what you're receiving, you got a problem. And the church pretty much throughout the world, it isn't just the, 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 the Latin rite, but it was all of the rites of the church, very early on seemed to limit those who could touch the Blessed Sacrament as a kind of instructive thing. That's my suspicion, that to emphasize the nature of the real change of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, it was fenced around with great, uh, great reverence. Jews do this with the Torah. You don't touch the Torah with your finger. You don't move your finger along the text. You have a little pointer and it's often shaped like a hand with a finger. You use the little pointer to emphasize the sacredness of the text. 
And that was what was going on. In the early church, apparently there was no problem in discerning that this really was the body and blood of Christ, and it seems to have been received in the hand. Uh, I think this is the communion instruction of St. Cyprian. I'd have to look that up. But um, I, don't, I don't know that the hand is any less sacred than the tongue. Um, it was a matter of an expression of reverence. That's the principle, the expression of reverence. And I think that is an issue. Uh, um, I really dislike the idea when people, your kid comes up and grabs the host and runs down the aisle with it. This is just, this kid doesn't know what he's receiving. And as part of this year of Eucharistic revival that's coming up, we need to emphasize the reality of what we're receiving. Um, so I don't come down on one side or the other in that argument. Um, but I do come down on the side of understanding what we're receiving and treating it with great reverence. Uh, you know, if, if I had my druthers, which I don't, you know, and again, we obey the bishop. God is pleased by obedience. Without obedience, it is impossible to please God. Well, the bishop's just a man. Yeah, he's a man with a very special role. And uh, well, I obey God. Well, how are you going to hear God? God has given us these weak men who are bishops and weak men who are priests like myself, and he uses them for, for his, his glory. And so we obey them. Uh, um, so obey the bishop. However, if, if I had my druthers, I would, I would restore kneeling for communion, not necessarily on the hand or the tongue, but um, it is a very unique thing catechetically for children to see their parents kneeling and waiting for something. How often does a kid see that? That's the point of this, that these gestures are kind of a form of catechesis. When we went to communion standing, we all, or, or receiving in the hand, we all had a great awe and respect for the Blessed Sacrament. That has evaporated. So maybe it's time to reconsider that. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not at that level of decision-making in any way. And again, uh, you know, you do what the bishop tells you because that's what's pleasing to God. I really believe that, and, and I'm not just saying that. All right. Uh, so I, I, I just know that it seems in the early church that communion in the hand was 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 certainly common and available. All right. Let's see here. This is from what? Let me look at the clock. Oh, I think we've got time for a couple, a few more letters. Oh, and we have plenty of lines open at, the, at, any, rate, at any rate, as I constantly say, uh, 888-914-9149, plenty of lines open, 888-914-9149. All right, let's go to another letter. Uh, in Luke 10, 17 to 20, Jesus says to his disciples, this is Jim from La Crosse, Behold, I've given you the power to tread upon serpents and scorpions, and upon the full force of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. Does Jesus give us this power as well? Yes, when we need it. <laughs> In other words, the Lord is not saying to the apostles, you know, it's a really cool parlor trick. You can really impress people by treading on serpents and picking up scorpions. It'll freak them out. That's not what it was for. Jesus is saying, I will accompany you in the mission, and I will protect you from these things. If the Lord has said, go do this, then he will protect you. Uh, but there's a, there's a sect called the Snake Handlers uh, in in uh, the mountains of Appalachia and different places, and they take that text 
very, very, very literally. And what they will do, uh, they will uh, have venomous snakes at their religious services and under the heat of religious frenzy, I don't know what else to call it, they will uh, uh, take these venomous snakes out of the, out of the, the cages and dance about with them. And it's this very hypnotic thing. I remember hearing a, pers- a story of a person who investigated snake handlers, the snake handling cults and sects, and they're Christian sects. They believe in the Holy Trinity, most of them, and and uh, and and our Lord Jesus. Um, but they have this weird interpretation. And the guy who was covering them said it was almost seductive. I wanted to do it. Um, occasionally, someone gets bit by the poisonous serpent, and they'll drink poison too. Um, occasionally, someone will get the, the, drinking the poison usually kills them, and occasionally they'll get bit by one of these snakes. Uh, um, and die, well, they didn't have enough faith. That's crazy. They didn't have enough faith. That's absolutely ridiculous. This is not this this text of scripture is not given so that people can do this arbitrarily. What Jesus is saying is, don't worry about the dangers. I will take care of you if you're on mission. So I think that's how you read that text. Don't don't go picking up scorpions and snakes. You're going to get stung. All right. All right, let's see here. Uh, we got to, oh, what, let me just do this one. Oh, and we're getting calls. I've heard you say in the past the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox churches have valid sacraments to apply to all Eastern churches. If there is a valid episcopate in a church, Oriental Orthodox churches, Coptic Orthodox, Tawahada Orthodox, uh, Church of the East and Syriac churches, yes, they have valid, uh, valid sacraments because they are genuinely churches. We define a church as a bishop in union with his congregation. That's the classic definition of a church. And if someone uh, separates himself from the bishop, um, then there's a problem. Now, lastly, Lutheran church. When did the Lutheran church stop having valid sacraments? When they stopped understanding the the, the mass as sacrifice, uh, they didn't ordain priests to offer sacrifice. They did not have the intention that the church has. In order for a sacrament to be valid, you must do what the church prescribes and intend what the church intends. In other words, if if I, even if I don't believe that bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Christ and I'm an ordained priest, but I say I want to do what the church intends, even though I'm not sure of it, it's still valid. If I say I don't intend to consecrate this, I'm just it's bread and wine, and I don't intend to change it, then it is not valid. Intention is part of validity. I am right about that, aren't I, dear voice in my head? Intention is part of validity. For the sacraments? For the sacraments, yeah. Yes, you have to intend what the church intends. Yeah, yeah. Like even an atheist could baptize someone if they intend to do it. Exactly. The uh, uh, so the, the, when Martin Luther stopped intending uh, to offer sacrifice— then his mass has also lost validity, we would say. And then they, of course, changed the, the, uh, the definition of ordination and the definition of apostolic succession. They didn't, they didn't practice it. So right at the beginning, the Lutheran movement ceased, at least in the eyes of traditional churches, Orthodox and Catholic, ceased to be uh, valid. So I hope that answers the question. But if a church has a validly ordained bishop, they have what we call the apostolic succession, 
and those they ordain exercise valid sacraments. That's as I understand it again. If I'm wrong, I would like to be corrected. We're going to go to a break. We'll come back with a very brief word of the day, and and we'll have phone calls. 888-914-9149, sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters. Today, we'd like to thank Deborah, who's listening in California for donating her 1986 Volkswagen Jetta. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. You, you, you can tell the world about this. You can tell the nations about that. Tell them what the master has done. You know, joy, joy, joy. And I don't know, in the words of the great American philosopher Rodney King, can't we all just get along? I mean, we certainly do like to argue about things. Um, And I think things are important, some of the things we argue about. But there is a larger concern as the world goes to hell in a handbasket, as they say. And and I I don't know. I don't want to sound liberal because Lord knows I'm not. But all that said, the uh, let us move on to the word of the day. Okay. The word of the day, we get, I think this is so interesting. I lost my mouse during the break, but that's the mouse. I found it. See, there we go. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> Oh, I just you gotta laugh. If you don't laugh, you cry. All right, moving you along. Get phone calls about that sounds gross or something. <laughs> yeah, we get phone calls saying it sounds awful. The mouth. Okay, in the reading we have uh, poor Paul fetching away. Alexander the coppersmith did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That word, that's kind of. I don't know if I want to say it's deceptive, but it's deceptive because the word in the text is works. Erga. Ergon is a work. And it's fascinating that if you if you really look at the, uh, you know, you look at St. Paul's letter to the Romans. I, I've got one here that Romans 2, 6. And I'm going to talk about this when we start, when we get back to uh, studying the letter of the Romans. Uh, we, we get this kind of disingenuous translation. Uh, Romans 2, 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. The word is works. In other words, St. Paul says we're not saved by works but by grace, but then he says God will judge us according to our works. The word is work. I'm hopefully we'll explain that tomorrow, but but in this poignant letter, 2 Timothy, St. Paul is clearly saying that works are important, that God repays us according to our works. Uh, and and I, I think that that word, so the word of the day is ergon, which means work. And it is the word that St. Paul uses, and sometimes it's translated deeds. So it doesn't sound like St. Paul is preaching salvation by works, but he most certainly is talking about the importance of works. All right, that said, let us go to, uh, let us go to uh, phone calls. This is smart. Maxwell's smart. Rose, what can I do for you? 
Yes, Father, thank you for taking my call. Father, um, I just, you know, when I go to Eucharistic Adoration, uh, you know, it's it's such a sacred time, and, you know, you're in awe of Jesus being there so close to you. Um, I'm always, um, you know, uh, prayerful when I'm there and, you know, just concentrating on Jesus. But I've noticed, like, um, yesterday I went, and there's um, some people that what they'll do is they raise their hand, and then they move it back and forth, not sideways, but like waving at Jesus kind of. And I, I don't know, I mean, if it, I don't know what that means. And then, then I think to myself, well, I'm not doing that. So I'm not really doing what Jesus wants. So I don't know. Well, um, you stumped the Reverend Know-It-All. I've never seen that. And it, if, if I don't know that Jesus wants to be waved at, I, I, cannot, I cannot pass this opportunity up. But in the in the days when the changes first came in, when I was a very young man, I heard a story about about a double tabernacle, double doored tabernacle. You used to have tabernacles that had the door in the front of the tabernacle, but it was kind of built into a, a wall behind the altar. And in a passageway in the back was a, a another set of doors, so that another priest could come in and get the blessed sacrament for a sick call without interrupting the congregation. So, you know, you had doors in the front and door, kind of hidden doors in the back. And I remember hearing the story of this this young priest who was a bit of a wag and did not have the proper respect for the Blessed Sacrament. The old pastor would conduct a holy hour at night, and they would end the holy hour. He would repose the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle. And I'm not making this up. He would repose the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle and leave the tabernacle doors open while the choir sang this maudlin old song, Good Night, Sweet Jesus. And this young priest came and stuck his hand through the tabernacle and waved at the congregation. It's the only other time I've heard of people waving, and and I've never waved at the Blessed Sacrament. You will see sometimes in a Eucharistic procession people waving a white handkerchief. I think this is a vaguely European custom. You see it, for instance, uh, at, at Fatima, that sort of thing. But I've never seen anyone just wave at the Blessed Sacrament, and I don't think you are obliged to wave at the Blessed Sacrament if that has no meaning for you. And uh, you know, if but I wouldn't deprecate them if this is a gesture that means something to them. Fine, but it doesn't mean anything to me or you, so I'm not waving at the Blessed Sacrament. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yes, it does. But I mean, what is the proper way then to be there and to you know? Um be you know yes. with Jesus. I mean, provided you are not disturbing, provided you are not disturbing anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, if if your if your expression of love for Jesus is yodeling, don't do it. No, <laughs> no. It might be a wonderful expression of love for Jesus. I remember you remember the story of God's juggler. There was a monk who had absolutely no talents, and mm-hmm. he didn't know what he could give Jesus, and. Uh, it's a beautiful old story, uh, and I, I don't know if it's considered true, but it's a beautiful story that this, mm-hmm. this, this monk, he could juggle. And when no one else was in church, he would go and stand in front of, uh, <clears throat> of the statue of the Blessed Mother holding the child Jesus, and he would juggle mm. out of love for Jesus. But no one else was yeah, in the like- church. Somebody peeked into the church, and it wasn't a statue that they were looking at. The Blessed Mother was standing there with Jesus. So, you know, provided you're not disturbing anyone and it's not an irreverent gesture, fine. You know, if you want to do liturgical dance, ask the pastor if you can come in at midnight and do it. But you don't do it during the holy hour because 
you wouldn't be dancing for Jesus. You'd be dancing in front of a congregation that might want to throw missilettes at you. You know, that, that, that if a gesture is reverent and meant with love, it's fine, provided it does not disturb anyone else. If someone's waving at Jesus, it's not going to bother me. If someone is yodeling for Jesus, that might bother me. So that's the idea. You see, these are private devotions, and, and uh, within bounds, we can do what we please at them if we respect other people who are worshiping. Does that make sense to you? Yes. No, it does, Father. Yeah. It's just, I, I just thought, well, maybe I should be doing this. No, too. I don't think you are obliged to wave at Jesus. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, it was like a back and forth hand movement. Yeah. Yeah. Just, know. I wouldn't so. worry about it. Well, thanks for calling in, Rose. And, you know, I'm sort of on your side. I'm not going to wave at Jesus. <laughs> but the Lord, the Holy Spirit might say, I want you to wave. And then I would. But let's go to Kate from Chicago. Hi, Father. Yes. My question is, um, when I take the Eucharist, I kneel, mm-hmm. and I put my hand out. Okay. The reason being, I I always say, God, forgive me, and I, and I feel like it's a, uh, I want to honor him by kneeling, but I don't feel comfortable with it on the tongue. Is that okay to do that, or is that too hybrid? I I would say within within reason, within bounds, you know, again— that that there you obey the bishop, but in general, unless the local bishop says otherwise, you have the right to receive communion in the hand or on the tongue. You have the right to receive communion standing or kneeling. So kneeling and in the hand is fine, you know. Uh, but if if this is uh, uh, you know one of the problems with people kneeling is uh, you know it it. Um, if you have the opportunity to kneel at a kneeler, that's one thing. But sometimes people drop to their knees and the person behind them trips over them. You have to be sensitive to your fellow worshipers. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's a problem. If if uh, the priest uh, in your parish is good with it, you know, and, and is used to it, that's fine. So I, I would say that's fine. You don't If you're kneeling, you don't have to receive on the tongue. If you're standing, you don't have to receive in the hand unless there is a local uh, uh, prescription on that. So remember, you know, well, this is my right. Yeah, St. Paul says all, all things are permissible, but not all things are advisable. I have to find that text, but it's in there. So I hope that helps, Kate. God bless. Let's go to Evangeline from Cerritos, California. Evangeline, what can Father, I do for good you? M- yes. Father, good morning, and thank you so much. Uh, yes. I just came back from Israel oh, on a pilgrimage. Wow. And I want to ask you, what is the historical background of the conflict in Gaza between the oh, Israelites and the, and the Palestinians? Okay, uh, there, are t- there are different kinds of Palestinians. There are Palestinians um, um, who are Muslim. There are Palestinians who are Christian. Uh, the majority of, Pal- of people in the Holy Land around 1900 would have been Palestinian Christians. And it is thought that Palestinian Christians are descended from the first inhabitants of the land, that they would be descendants of the Jews who accepted Christ and stayed in the the land. Uh, They would have been added to by many migrations. For instance, crusaders came in and different ethnic groups. So it's a very ethnically diverse group in some ways. Uh, some of those original inhabitants of the land converted to Islam uh, around 600 A.D. Uh, and following, uh, and some of the Muslim uh, 
residents of the Holy Land emigrated into the Holy Land. So those are the two kinds of Palestinians. Then you have the Israelis, who are recent immigrants, recent being in the last 150 years. The Zionist movement uh, realized that they would never be fully integrated into Europe and started a movement to return to what they regard as their homeland. So, So those are the Israelis. And there has always been conflict in the Holy Land. Uh, the Holy Land was settled by a bunch of Greeks at one point, uh, and the 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 uh, Hebrew-speaking, the Aramaic-speaking people, the, what we would call the Jewish people, resented them. There was tremendous strife. Then the Romans took over. There was tremendous strife. There's never been a time when there has not been tremendous strife in the Holy Land. Now, the, the Israelis... Uh, are recent immigrants, mostly from Europe, as uh, they, they really tended to go there after the Second World War, uh, which now is getting close to 100 years ago, and, and they populated the Holy Land. But there were Zionists who had begun to go there dur- during the time the Holy Land was, was run by the Turks. I mean, this, the, the, the history of this, this little piece of real estate is incredibly complicated, and in, incredibly ridden with strife. Well, the they, the early Zionists bought land from the Turkish administration. The later the later immigrants, uh, in the process of war, uh, took the land uh, um, because the Arab states around them were not going to allow a non-Arab state in that area. Well, didn't work. There's this is an almost untangleable knot, and uh, you know this is. Uh, very difficult. The people for whom it is most difficult are Palestinian Christians. They are they are put upon by everyone else. So we pray for them and we do what we can to support them, and we pray for peace. Uh, I, I I remember. Did I, did I tell the story about the the guy chasing me with the the big multicolored beaded rosary in Bethlehem? I don't think I told it on the I don't air. Remember that. I was I was in the Holy Land and uh, on a pilgrimage and. Uh, I was in Bethlehem, and this this fellow was chasing me down the street. He was Muslim, and he was a peddler, and he was chasing me with this big, rather garish wooden rosary, and he's saying, one dollar, one dollar, one dollar, one dollar. And I stopped, and I turned, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, we Americans hate this kind of thing. If you could all just get along, you have everything in this country we love. You have beautiful beaches and religion. Americans love both of those. If you could all just get along, you would all be rich. And he looked at me and he said, rich? And I said, yes, rich. And he thought and he said, one dollar, one dollar, one dollar, one dollar. They don't seem to be able to forget a grudge that happened a thousand years ago. And uh, the idea that we could work together and not uh, the state of Jordan and the state of Israel have been doing some wonderful collaboration in the Jordan Valley with water resources, which are very sparse over there. The, if they could only learn to collaborate, it's a beautiful place, and it could be a place of great joy and peace. But in the 2,000 years since Jesus said, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers chicks under her wings, and they, but you did not know the time of your visitation. Since then and from before then, it has been a land torn with strife, and all we can do is pray. I don't know if that explains the situation to you, but um, you know uh, the one most, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and he wept, I think, because he saw 
the, the thousands and thousands of years of strife. So I hope that may give you a little a little insight. I don't know if it does, but God bless you for listening, and we all pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for an end to this horrible situation. Let's go to Jamie from Dubuque. Jamie, are you with us? Hello, good father. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, my question is, uh, as far as praying for someone's conversion, yes. especially that of our loved ones, um, there is free will involved. Uh, yes. And so is the idea that God puts forth graces that are so appealing that somebody will um, will be given the grace of conversion? I, I, I think, I can't remember exactly what uh, St. Faustina said, something to the effect that the prayer of conversion is the one God always hears. Now, I know he hears our prayers. I don't know if she meant that the prayers were always successful, but how does the grace of conversion and prayers for that enter into the idea of free will, which is also a gift of God? That's a pretty, well, there's a doctorate in there um, that I'm not about to get, but, you know, if, what does it mean when we pray? Uh, you know, that we, we, in general, why do we pray? Um, uh, they're, the pagans pray so that the gods will do what they what 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 the person praying wants. I've heard it said the Christian prays so the Christian will do what God wants, and that's true. But the real reason we pray is to give God permission to do what He wants. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. That's how we pray. Well, isn't God going to do His will anyway? No. In 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 when it involves our freedom, God only does what we give him permission to do. So we're praying for the grace of conversion for people. And normally we're praying, I want you to do this for my kid. That's good. But the prayer of conversion, I think, is, God, I'm handing my child over to you. I remember a woman who, who at a prayer group, she said her son was just out till 2, 3, 4 in the morning, and I'd wait up for him, and I would yell at him and tell him he has to repent and he's not doing anything. I said, well, try something different. Always do what you've always done, and you always get what you've always gotten. So I said, make a ham sandwich for him and say, how was your evening, dear? Well, he started coming home earlier for the ham sandwich and eventually stopped going on chasing around and eventually accepted Christ. So when we pray for the grace of conversion for someone, we're handing them over to God. We're not telling God what they got to do, what he's got to do. We're handing them over to God. And speaking of handing people over to God, Drew is coming up and he will help you do that. <laughs> 